Let's go ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer today. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your perfect wisdom. We ask that you might make us more like Christ, knowing that your understanding, your knowledge, your wisdom is best, as this text shows us today. Help us to submit to what we hear in the word. Encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Probably no better hymn that we could have introduced this text with today uh, because of uh, all of the discussion about God's wisdom that we have here. There is a story, uh, an old story, perhaps uh, maybe closer to legend, uh, but it goes something like this. Uh, the story is told of a small English village that had a tiny chapel whose stone walls were covered by traditional ivy. Over an arch was originally inscribed the words, We preach Christ crucified. There had been a generation of godly men who did precisely that. They preached Christ crucified. But times changed. The ivy grew and pretty soon covered the last word. The inscription now read, we preach Christ. Other men came and they did preach Christ. Christ the example. Christ the humanitarian. Christ the ideal teacher. As the years passed, the ivy continued to grow until finally the inscription read, We preach. The generation that came along then did just that. They preached economics, social gospel, book reviews, just about anything. From the beginning of the church, one of the persistent nagging temptations for the Christian has been to adopt and integrate the wisdom of this world. It has been to embrace and even celebrate the wisdom that the world has produced that is contrary to Christ. Paul stated in no uncertain terms in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, a very stern warning to the church that we, at this current day and age, this current generation needs to understand and accept, and that is this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The warning is given very early on in the church that there is going to be a very strong temptation for us as believers to give credence to the philosophies of the world. There will be philosophies here in this world that you will hear and you will think that's plausible. That makes sense. There are worldviews and manners of thinking that the world will deliver to you and you will say, yeah, that makes sense to me. And one of the most common threads in these alternative philosophies will be a departure from the simplicity of Christ crucified. Christ crucified is not enough. 
one may uh, think and consider the various ways that Christians are tempted to embrace the thinking of the world today. In our current culture, one might think of the ways that biology or psychology, sociology are increasingly offering uh, competing ways of thinking for the Christian. The Bible says this, however, this seems more plausible. One also might call uh, to mind the ways in which uh, Darwin, Marx, Freud, and Rousseau have changed the landscape of the way we think. So it's contrary to Scripture. But of course, as we understand from Scripture, this kind of thinking, contrary to Christ crucified, must not be named among us. We must think differently. Christians think differently than the culture around us. We think as those who are redeemed and as people who value the authority of Christ. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting uh, in verse 18. And we're actually going to go all the way to chapter 2 and verse 5. We're biting off a big chunk today, uh, and we're going to try to get through all of this. So starting in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, we read this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low, despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that purpose, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, not yourselves, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us from God. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech... And my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're going to be looking at this 
really in three different sections today. We're going to see the first section is that divine wisdom is described to us. And then in the second section, we're going to see divine wisdom is uh, illustrated. And then finally, divine wisdom applied. We might summarize this first section, verses um, uh, 18 to 25 here, by quoting verse 20, where we simply read, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Hasn't God made this wisdom foolish? It's a rhetorical question, and of course, in this rhetorical question, there's a certain answer that's expected, and that answer uh, is, uh, that's expected is certainly, certainly he has done this. Certainly God has taken the wisdom of the world and made it foolish. And as we will see later in the passage today, God actually takes delight. He actually takes pleasure in bringing shame to human wisdom. He, he actually enjoys and delights in taking our wisdom that we have achieved in our own doing and just destroying it and bringing shame to it. We uh, begin here in verse 18 where we read this, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing or unbelievers, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, right away, he begins by promoting his theme that the wisdom of God is better. He does this by contrasting two different types of people. You have, on the one hand, those who are perishing, and you have, on the other hand, those who are being saved. Uh, it's interesting that this really is the way that Scripture classifies humanity. Uh, scripture does not classify humanity into all of these other kinds of subgroups. Um, he, he, scripture doesn't classify people into ethnicity or gender or, or this or that. It's just saved and lost. You, you are in one of those two groups. There, there's not a, a third way. There, there's not a middle group. There's not a, I'm on the fence deciding that there's not anything else. Jesus says you're either for him or you're against him. You, you gather with him or you scatter. There, there's those two options here. And that's the, the dichotomy that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. And to the, to the one group, to, to the group that's lost, or to those, as he says here, who are perishing, the message of the cross, the gospel message, is foolish to those people. So unbelievers hear the gospel preached and they think, that's stupid. That's, that's a dumb message. It's foolishness or folly to, to that particular group. And, and imagine this for a moment. I mean, many of us, perhaps most of us, have grown up connected to the church in some way. Um, so we've heard this message, many of us, not all of us, many of us have heard this message of the gospel for our entire lives. Now imagine if you had never heard this message before. And so today you hear for the very first time that all of mankind uh, sin and all of mankind is destined to a place of eternal torment and punishment because of that sin. And God, the creator of everything, decided that the way to fix that problem was for him to become a man 
and to be tortured himself and die a shameful death on a tree. And then he would rise again from the dead and tell everyone, if you believe in me, you could have eternal life and not be tormented for all of eternity. You would probably say, that sounds really weird. (laughs) What's going on here? This is the way that the world looks at this particular message of the gospel. Uh, It sounds insane to the world, but God was pleased. It actually pleased God to produce a way of salvation for us that doesn't make sense to us. God was happy to to take and say, the way that I'm going to fix this is a way that they're not going to think up on their own and a way that when they first hear it is going to sound pretty foolish. Please, God, that sounds kind of odd that that would do that. Why? Because God delights in confounding human wisdom. That's what it says in the next verse. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 29, 14, where we read, um, uh, he says here, uh, Behold, I will again do wonderful things with his people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Uh, Not only does Isaiah say, uh, the quote comes from Isaiah, but Jeremiah says something similar in chapter 8 and verse 9 that says, The wise men shall be put to shame. He's delighting in taking this worldly wisdom and, and putting it to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? There is none. They have no wisdom. God loves to shame the wise. He loves to expose their inadequacy and lack of wisdom. He loves to destroy the wisdom of the wise. One commentator uh, talking about this verse says that human wisdom is under God's eschatological judgment. It's under God's judge. God is judging the wisdom of this world, which makes us wonder something. If this is God's disposition towards worldly wisdom, towards wisdom without God, towards non-biblical wisdom— If that's God's attitude toward that, why is it that the Corinthians wanted this wisdom so bad? I mean, at least we can, can, I think with a fair amount of certainty, say the Corinthians did want this bad. Otherwise, why would Paul talk about this with them? Uh, In Corinthian culture, they were very much impressed and obsessed with different philosophers and and ways of thinking. And some commentators believe that that's the reason why Paul says, you know, uh, rebukes them for, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and so forth, because they were kind of doing what the world was doing. They were bringing that personality obsession into the church, and they were obsessing over human wisdom. Perhaps maybe, you know, Paul admits that he's not very uh, rhetorically skilled or talented. Perhaps some of these others, Apollos was more so, and, and perhaps some of the people in the Corinthian church, you know, well, well this, he, he can speak much more eloquently than Paul can, or whatever it might be. We, we can, I think, assume with a fairly strong degree of accuracy that the Corinthians were, were wanting to embrace this kind of worldly wisdom 
And so we wonder why they wanted this so bad, something that God was intent on destroying. And likewise, we have to wonder today why so many uh, Christians today have become enamored with worldly philosophies that are completely antithetical to Scripture. Why would we want to cling to the very thing that God is bent on destroying? Why would we want to, to elevate and lift up human autonomous thinking, independent of God? Why would we want to love the thing that God wants to thwart? Why would we love that which God hates? Paul helps us to expose further this folly of loving worldly wisdom by offering another rhetorical question in verse 20. He says this, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Again, more rhetorical questions upon rhetorical questions. The answer is they're nowhere to be found. And if this was true then, how much more is it true now? I mean, we are in the year 2021. We can put human beings on the moon, okay? We, we can watch a live news conference anywhere on this planet from a little device that fits into our pockets. And yet hunger isn't resolved yet. Fighting isn't resolved yet. Wars are not resolved yet. Where's the wise man? Where are they? Come forward and tell us how we can finally achieve peace. We still have hunger and poverty and division. We still have injustice. What has worldly wisdom ever done for us? God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Now, the thing that perplexes me, perhaps more than anything else, is not unbelievers who embrace worldly wisdom. It is believers who try to integrate worldly wisdom and worldly philosophy into Christianity. You have to pick a side. You can't straddle the fence. You can't take enough of Christianity so that your Christian friends like you and enough of the world so that your worldly friends like you. You have to pick one or the other. And we can't play this game where we're integrating them with one another because these philosophies are antithetical to one another. They're at odds with one another. You can't straddle the fence. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Christ says you either uh, gather with me or you scatter. Uh, one of the, the, the terms that's being thrown around right now is to use some of these un, unbiblical philosophies as analytical tools. We won't accept the whole worldview, but we'll just accept it as an analytical tool. Uh, we have to understand that we cannot accept unbelieving systems of thought based on unbelieving systems of sociology as an analytical tool. God, God has given us all the tools in the Bible. We don't need other analytical tools to find out how to answer the problems of the world. This is the same thing that has gone on for generations. We see this here in Corinth. We see it in our own day. Uh, even in the day of, uh, of Isaiah the prophet. Look at what God is doing to the wisdom of Egypt. Uh, it says, The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. The, the wisest. Take Pharaoh's best of the best. And God says, That counsel is 
stupid. I wonder what the Lord would say about modern 21st century counsel. We see a couple verses down in Isaiah chapter 19, uh, another interesting statement in the same context of, of rebuking this worldly wisdom. Uh, he says this in verse 14 about these counselors. They will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in its vomit. This, 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 is, this is where worldly wisdom is going to get you, Egypt. This, this is where the wisest counselors, the best of the best, make Egypt stagger like a drunken man. How, uh, um, getting ahead of myself here a little bit. God hates human wisdom. I mean, we, we have to come to that conclusion, if nothing else, based on what we've seen so far. Human wisdom is an enemy of God. And God, by the way, what is God doing with his enemies? He, he's putting them all underneath his feet like a footstool, right? We see 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's a little footstool for him to put his feet on to say, I've conquered this particular thing. The reason for this is given in verse 21, which says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. How has God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Through the folly of preaching. It specifically says that preaching pleases God particularly as he describes it here as the folly of preaching, the foolishness of, of preaching. God is pleased to take something that the world says that's foolish. This is wisdom over here, that preaching, that's foolish. And God says, I'm going to take the very thing that you think is stupid to bring salvation. This is how he frustrates human wisdom by causing their wisdom to fail and causing his wisdom to succeed. And what the world thinks is stupid is actually wise and vice versa. Then he explains specifically how this is folly to certain groups, namely Jews and Gentiles. He begins to explain, here's why people think this is foolish. He says, Jews, what do they want? Signs. Greeks, what do they want? Wisdom. But we preach what? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying Jews only believe things if it's accompanied by a sign, some miraculous event. Greeks only believe things if it kind of stimulates the mind. Give me something intellectual to think on. Christ crucified to that person is not very intellectually stimulating. Christ crucified is not very intellectually stimulating to our current culture. I mean, if you don't believe that, just go to a secular university college campus and go sit in a, in a, uh, a lecture on philosophy and say, I believe that the answer to the world's problems is Christ crucified. They will laugh you out of that room. 
It is absolute and complete foolishness. And God delights in confounding their wisdom by making that succeed. Christianity offers neither this fanciful, uh, miraculous signs continuously like the Jews were looking for. It doesn't offer this, you know, philosophically, intellectually stimulating conversation amongst the elite in our culture. It simply offers this. We preach Christ crucified. This is... We only have one bullet. The the church only has one strategy. This is it. We have no plan B. We have no alternative. We have nothing other than the gospel. Christ is enough. You can take this into the world. You must take this into the world. You must take this into the philosophy classroom. You you must take this into the whole world. Because their wisdom is perishing. Why, why, Why are we the ones that are embarrassed? Why are we the ones that are ashamed? Why are we ashamed of sharing the gospel? They're the ones that should be ashamed. I'm not engaging in mockery here. I'm just saying that their worldview is failing. Christianity is succeeding. It works. You heard it at 9 a.m. today. They are the ones who should be ashamed. We are the ones who should be filled with joy knowing this works. This succeeds. Christ is enough. Christ crucified. That's all we need. For the sign-seeking Jew, Christ crucified is a stumbling block. For the wisdom-seeking Greek, Christ crucified is foolishness. Um, you might consider in the second century, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, he had a, a dialogue with a man named, uh, a Jewish man named Trypho, and he wrote about this. Um, and uh, he was trying to explain to Trypho, Jesus, Christ crucified, this is the message. And here's what this Jewish man said in response to it. Trypho said this, This, your so-called Christ, is without honor and glory, so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. (laughs) Jesus? Are you kidding me? He was crucified. And, of course, he's referencing Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, um, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Jesus, according to the law, is cursed by God. And you think that's the answer? Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. It's foolishness. 
The cross was, of course, scandalous for the Jew. It could never, ever happen that the Messiah would be cursed by God in this way. Just consider the preface to the, the marrow of modern divinity. Um, says this, The gospel method of sanctification, as well as justification, lies so far out of the range of natural reason. He's saying the, the gospel way that we're justified and sanctified, it's so far away from how people think naturally that if all the rationalists in the world philosophers and divines had consulted together to lay down a plan. They all get together, and we're going to put together a plan to rescue humanity uh, for, <clears throat> for repairing the lost image of God and man. They had never hit upon that which the divine wisdom has pitched upon, namely, that sinners should be sanctified in Christ Jesus. They would never get to this conclusion uh, by faith in him, nay, being laid before them, they would have rejected it with disdain as foolishness. They say, this is the most foolish message you could ever think of. In all views, which fallen man has towards the means of his own recovery, in every single view that we have tried to fix ourselves, the natural bent is the way of the covenant of the works. I'm going to earn my way out of this. This is evident, and then he gives some examples. This is evident in the case of the vast multitudes throughout the world embracing Judaism, paganism, Islam, and popery. All these agree in this one principle, that it is by doing men must live. It, you put all of them together, the wisest of the wisest, and the answer is going to be that by doing men may live. By accomplishing you may get there. This is, this is the theme. Every time we share the gospel, this is what we're competing against. An opportunity by God's grace this past week to share the gospel with someone. And what basis do you think you stand before God? Well, I'm a good person. I think God will take that into consideration. This is what our world swims in. That by doing, men must live. But to those who are called, to those who are in Christ, Christ is what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. In fact, he says God's foolishness, as if God had foolishness. God's foolishness is better. It's wiser than men. But this isn't the end yet because Paul is going to now give the Corinthians an illustration of God's wisdom at work. He's kind of explained a little bit God's wisdom is victorious, human wisdom fails, and now he's going to give us uh, an illustration of this. And he begins by saying this in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Here's what Paul is saying. You want an example of how God destroys human wisdom? Go look in a mirror. <laughs> he picked you. <laughs> he picked, you guys have nothing to offer. He, Paul is borderline insulting these people. He's saying, look at yourselves. You are the least likely group of people on the planet that would be recipients of God's grace. And you think you got here by worldly wisdom? Are you serious? On the whole, 
Gospel recipients are unwise, weak, and low on the cultural totem pole. I mean, when all of the wise people in Corinth got together and said, we want to make some progress on on making, you know, uh, a dent in our culture, they did not go down to the church at Corinth to consult them. Okay? The same is true today. The world does not come here today to think, we need to make some progress in our community. Let's go down to the local church. Look at you guys. Look at us. Look at me. This is what Paul is saying. If if someone in Corinth was looking for something noble, they didn't go to the local church. Now, we do have to say here one thing, and uh, someone has said um, uh, something to the effect of, you know, their salvation hinges or, or hinged on one letter. In, in the English, at least, uh, in this particular verse. And I think we need to rejoice that God has written this the way that he's written it. But he said, not many. The letter M is sometimes uh, the difference between heaven and hell for people. Because he didn't say not any. He said not many. Okay? God in his wisdom doesn't say... I'm only calling people low on the cultural totem pole. God sometimes calls people pretty high on that totem pole, and he fixes them and turns them around and redeems them and rescues them and saves them. And we're thankful for the mysterious way that God works in the gospel. It's, it's not many, not, not, not any. God does call people of all sorts of backgrounds, of all sorts of intellectual capabilities, and then he changes them. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. Why? To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Why? To bring to nothing things that are, so that why? No human being might boast in the presence of God. God wanted to use this ragtag group of Corinthian believers who had no value in the eyes of the world and use them to shame the wise. God delights in bringing shame to the wise because it shows that his ways are better. Richard Sibbs says God delights to confound carnal wisdom as enmity to him and robbing him of his prerogative who is God only wise. We must, therefore, walk by his light, not our own light, and not by the blaze of our own fire. God must light our candle, or else we are like to abide in darkness. You have to walk by God's wisdom, not your own fire, not your own candle, not your own flashlight. God is the one to, God is the one to give wisdom. God delights in drawing Christians out from the bottom of the barrel. He picked you? He had to show his wisdom to confound earthly wisdom. There are these statements here, these purpose statements of, 
he does this to shame the wise. But there's kind of a final and ultimate purpose statement uh, given to us, beginning in verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he says this in a couple of different ways. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Uh, this is a quote from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If anything is clear from these passages, if we're to walk away with anything, we need to walk away understanding that God really dislikes human boasting. He really doesn't like it when we boast in ourselves. And he has created a way of salvation that completely excludes any possibility of us boasting. There is nothing that you can do to say, look at what I did. It's 100% and 0%. Anything else would give you a ledge to grab a hold on to say, I did this much. We did nothing. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it uh, from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I the world. Again, we, we find ourselves sometimes experiencing shame when we have to share the gospel. And he's saying, this goes from shame, we're not even neutrality here. We're, we're talking about boasting. It's the other end of the spectrum. I, I'm not only not going to be afraid and ashamed to share the gospel, I'm going to boast about it because of how successful it is, because of how much it shows God's glory. Why can't we boast in ourselves? Because of verse 30. What does verse 30 say? Uh, let me go back here. Where is it here? You are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of... Yourself? You notice that little? Because of him. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Because of his working, because of his grace, because of his sovereignty. What does this mean? It means that God is the source of life. God is the source of your new spiritual life. Why are you in Christ? Because of him. What left? What, what, what's left? What's left over for you to boast in? Nothing. Because of him. So how does this look like in application? Well, Paul gives us this in the next section here. Wherever this is. Oops. First Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. He says this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't an example of great rhetoric. 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul appeals to the Corinthians to look at his own example. Paul's preaching was nothing spectacular. You didn't say, man, I really want to hear some good uh, Greek rhetoric tonight. I'm going to go listen to the Apostle Paul. Preaching, likewise, is not highly esteemed in our current culture. I mean, you, you don't go have a conversation with an unbeliever and say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And they say, I really just love to hear preaching. It's just so stimulating. They don't say that, okay? It's not appealing. Paul says, look at my example. If you want an example of the success of the foolishness of preaching, look to Paul. It's so foolish, and yet it's so successful. By worldly standards, he was nothing to see. He didn't come with this lofty speech, he says, or this wisdom, and he says, I decided to know nothing except Jesus and him crucifying. Now, this to, what does that mean? Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's all I'm going to know. What, what did he mean by that? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he never spoke on... So what does it mean that he says, I, I decided to speak, uh, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Um, 1 Corinthians talks about unity... It talks about sexual ethics. It talks about life in the church. Here's what I think Paul is saying. He's saying that everything that he spoke about is related to Christ, is connected back to Christ. Paul is saying, I I can't teach you about sexual ethics in a vacuum. Apart from, like, you have to know something about Christ if you're going to know about that. If you're going to know what unity looks like, there's no such thing as unity without Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as someone who um, obeys the commands of scriptures, but divorces that from the gospel. As if I could, as if, as if, you were to say, here, I, I want to be a Christian, but all I want is the ethical commands of Scripture. Just give me a list of the morals. Give me a list of the morals. Do this, do that, do this, don't do that, live this way. This is what Paul is saying. I, I knew nothing about except Christ crucified. It's every single thing connects back to Christ somehow. Therefore, Christ is relevant in the college philosophy classroom. Christ, Christ is relevant in a conversation where our community is saying, how do we fight drug addiction? Christ is necessary to that conversation. How, how, how do we combat the, 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 you know, the rise in crime? You can't have that conversation without Christ. <laughs> Look at where it's gotten us. It's getting worse. Okay? Because, because 
the unbelieving world has specifically said, you can come to the table, but you can't bring Christ with you. That's what they've said to us. Everything he talks about relates back to the gospel. One writer um, captures this when he says, whatever point Paul raises, therefore, whatever advice he gives, is related to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul sees it, everything in the world has to do with Jesus Christ. The, the flowers growing on a hillside a thousand miles away that no human being will ever set their eyes upon is about Jesus. It brings glory to him. The far reaches of the solar system that we will never be able to send a spaceship to, that no telescope could ever reach, that the beauty of the stars and the galaxies that we will never see with our naked eye or at all is about Jesus. When Jesus Christ looks at that and his eyes are the only eyes that gaze upon that beauty, it brings him pleasure and delight. He created it. It's his wisdom. It's better than our wisdom. The gospel is so precious to us. Christ delights in the gospel. He he delights in simply saying, my way succeeds. You can't boast in yourself. You can only boast in me. Guess what? All of life's about God. That's it. It's about him and his glory. Another author says this about Paul preaching only Christ. It is not that he does not try to persuade, but he trusts in God's power working through him in his message rather than trusting in his own powers of persuasion, knowing that the message of the cross despite seeming foolish, has divine power that other messages lack. I cannot persuade any of you to change your mind about anything. That's that's why I don't come up here trying to persuade anyone. This is the word. That's what persuades. The power is there, not in ourselves. Do we understand that? Do Do we grasp the fact that we don't need something else other than Christ and his word? Why does Paul choose to preach this way? He says that, according to verse 5, so that their faith might rest in God and not in the wisdom of men. Divine wisdom is better. The modern world has invented a million ways to think that they are better than God. And it does not take very long to recognize that the world has come up with very strong opinions on topics that God has already told us about in his word. He's already said this is how you achieve this. The world has come up with strong opinions on topics like justice, reconciliation, counseling, human identity, human purpose, human sexuality, human origins, economics, political theory, everything you want to talk about. What does God say? I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to undermine it. And so we have three applications here today. Number one, 
abandon the fleeting wisdom of this world. This is... I haven't really talked at all about how to identify that. I've given a few broad examples. But you know the best way to identify it is just get in the Bible and know the Word. If you are not in the Word, you are going to fall prey to human wisdom. End of story. It's, it's, we're breathing it in the culture. Number two, rejoice that God is victorious in destroying the wisdom of this world. We can rejoice in that. We can be thankful that God is doing this. We should be ashamed of nothing in the Bible. Number three, pursue and delight in the divine wisdom available only in Christ. Pursue it. Pursue the word. And as we apply these truths, may 2 Corinthians 11.3 not be true of us, which says this, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. May that never be said about us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us and for divine wisdom. Help us now to honor you. Help us as we look at communion, the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded of the unity that we have in the gospel and in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.